0: Glad y'all are here. This, this many people interested in small talk. <laughs> it's uh, telling. It's very telling. Uh, my name is Matt Howell. I'm the RUF campus minister now at the University of Tennessee. This is my first year there. I was uh, previously at the, at the Appalachian State Woo! University. Woo! And. Um, <laughs> You are in the seminar called the Ministry of Small Talk. So if you're in the wrong place, this is a good chance to find the right place. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want to begin by just pointing out three grounding, foundational, guiding texts. We won't really dive into these particular texts, but these will be the verses that really are shaping kind of what I'm going to be presenting this morning. So, we're going to look at two passages out of Proverbs and one passage out of James. Both of them, Proverbs and James, wisdom literature. So here it is. Um, Proverbs 18.13 says this. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If you give an answer before you hear, it is your folly and your shame. Proverbs 29.20 Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Last one. James 1.19 The most convicting verse in the Bible in many ways. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Although those rules don't apply to me for the next 45 minutes, but there you go. (laughs) Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Let me pray and then I'd love to kind of jump in and talk about what we're going to talk about. Father, we're grateful just for this um, conference, just for this chance to be together, this chance to hear your word so clearly over and over um, presented and pounded into our hearts. I pray that you would implant your word in our heart and make us the kind of people that are empowered by your spirit, by your grace, to be an attractive um, light for the Lord Jesus. May he be more beautiful and believable because of this conference in our lives and in our ministries. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by two stories. Story number one. At my previous school, Appalachian State University, there were these preachers that come through pretty typically, as is typical for a lot of different universities. And they set up shop and just start preaching the gospel, declaring kind of in the free speech alley stuff about Jesus usually calling people names as they do so. But sometime in this particular situation, there was kind of the main speaker, and he kind of had a team of people with him that would work the crowd as the main speaker was kind of inciting everybody. And one of the team members that was kind of working the crowd came up to one of my students and walked up to him and said, hey, are you a Christian? My My student said, yes. He said, do you understand the gospel? My student, because he was a Christian, said yes. And then the guy proceeded to give his gospel presentation for 20 minutes to my friend. And because my student, this is one of these laid-back students who had really nothing else better to do, he just sort of sat there and listened (laughs) very awkwardly to this guy talking at him. And he came up and told me about it afterward. He was like, it just made me really uncomfortable because I'm not used to having people come into my life and just start speaking at me. And if that made this Christian feel uncomfortable... You can imagine how it would make people that aren't Christians feel. Story number two. Uh, When I was in college, I went to the beach for the summer with a different campus ministry. And one of the things that we did uh, on Saturday was to uh, play this game on the beach called slow motion football. And we ran up and down the the beach shores trying to recruit people, trying to gather people. And so people were out there with their kids, families hanging out. Couples hanging out, and we'd gather them all and say, hey, we're playing this game. And so we'd get this huge crowd to watch us play slow motion football. And so we'd do like the slow motion hike, and like the slow, it was all like fake. And everybody's kind of watching the spectacle. And once we finished our fun game and we had everybody's attention, there was a crowd. All the students that were there flipped on them and shared the gospel with them, tricked them. And so here's sort of the driving question that I want to ask and try to interact with this morning is really what is evangelism? What is evangelism? Is evangelism merely making a presentation? Is it presenting something to somebody else? Is evangelism tricking somebody into a conversation about Jesus? Really, what is it? Well, there's a ton that we can say here, and we can't really say everything. We only have so much time. And, you know, we could talk about the church as the corporate witness, the church's sort of nuclear evangelism. I think we could have a whole seminar about that. We could talk about just living your life with integrity and faithfulness in your workplace and in your neighborhood. We could talk about that. But really, what I want to do for the rest of our time is zero in on something hyper specific and talk about what it looks like to have a normal, casual conversation with another human being. Because, you know, really, if you, if you boil this whole seminar down to one thing, this is me teaching you how to have a conversation. Because, as I've noticed in my conversations with people, people don't really know how to have good conversations. People don't know how to relate well. So, for example, one of the things that I see, the way people use conversations is they use it as just a means to one-up each other's stories you know what I'm talking about? Where the only reason I'm listening to you is so that you give me the subject material to, so I know what I'm supposed to talk about next, and it's just this game of competing for who has the better story. I, I've seen people have bad conversations in the way that they ask a question to someone and then don't listen to the answer. You know what I mean? This has happened to me before where someone asks me a question, and then as I'm answering it, their eyes start scanning the room. Maybe they pull out their phone, and I'm just like, You ask, you ask me the question. <laughs> Or you, or you see people having bad conversations in the way that they use it really just as a platform to talk about themselves. I mean, I've had students before where I walk up to them really before I can even say hello, they're already starting to tell me like, <laughs> about them. And so I like, okay. So, you know, bad conversations, I'm just gonna move forward with the assumption that we're bad at having conversations. You may be great at it, but for our purposes here, my assumption is we're all terrible at it. And so, what I wanna suggest is sort of the way forward as the title of the seminar suggests, is The Ministry of Small Talk. And I'm unashamedly stealing that phrase, that title, from a little chapter in Eugene Peterson's book, The Contemplative Pastor. I think it's at the book table here. I don't know if the book table is still open or not. But uh, there's a five-page little chapter in that book called The Ministry of Small Talk. And I think that chapter alone is worth the price of the whole book. So, I recommend it to you. I'm hijacking that from him. But let me give you a little roadmap of what we're going to do for the rest of our time. Four kind of big outline points, if, you're, if you want to think of it in these terms the ministry of small talk. We're going to look at the, post, the, the purpose, number one. The posture, number two. The practice, number three. And then lastly, the power the purpose, posture, practice and power and that may win the award for the nerdiest outline of the whole conference but there you go okay so the purpose posture practice and power first let's look at the purpose what's the purpose of small talk here's a big shocker it's to get to know someone spoiler alert that's the purpose of small talk is to get to know someone but okay to what end why would you want to get to know someone here's why you'd want to get to know someone is so that you know how to love them better So that you know how to pray for them more specifically. So that you know how to apply the gospel to them more effectively. So that you know how to serve them more practically. That's the purpose. It's love of neighbor. There's this great quote from N.T. Wright in his book called After You Believe. He's talking about love in a very profound way. And here's what he says. Let me give you this little quote. Regardless of what you think about N.T. Wright, he's right about this. He says this. Love affirms the reality of the other person, the other culture, or the other way of life. Love takes the trouble to get to know the other person or culture, finding out how she, he, or it ticks, what makes it special. And finally, love wants the best for that person or culture. I think that's, I think that's great. The purpose of small talk, the love of neighbor, is to take the time... To get to know how somebody else ticks, to give them dignity and honor by loving them and valuing them so that you can know how they tick, so that you can understand how to love them better. Now, now here's an image that may be helpful for you. This image does not originate with me by any means, but it's a helpful image. It's to think about people in terms of onions. You've heard this before. I think even Seinfeld used this, where it's like the, the, the deeper you get, the more layers you peel back, the stinkier it gets with somebody. But that's sort of the idea. So if you think about someone like an onion, the outer layer of the onion is sort of what, what is happening to them circumstantially. It's, this is kind of small talk land. This is where, this is where most people live. This is their TV shows that they're watching, the weather, the news. This is just kind of what's happening to them outside of them. If you go one layer in, maybe you would say, okay, that's what they like. That's their preferences. That's kind of what they enjoy. You peel back another layer and go in. Maybe that's getting more into their values, their family values, their political values. If you go all the way down in, the very center, the core of the onion is the heart. What rules their desires this is their motivational structure. This is their deepest fears, their deepest longings, what they treasure, what they most ultimately prize out of life. That's the heart. And so really the purpose of small talk is to get to the heart, to be able to figure out how does that person tick deep down. And that's really hard to do. That's really, there's lots of different approaches on how to get to the heart for somebody. And so, let, you know, let me give you three real quick. The first approach to getting to somebody's heart is what I'm just going to call the casual approach. This is where someone engages the other person in small talk, but that's kind of where the relationship ends up sort of camping. So you have a relationship with somebody, but you only ever talk about the news, the weather, Breaking Bad, Walking Dead. Amazing things that you should be talking about, but that's all that that relationship stays in. It just stays in the land of small talk, which is great, but it's too safe because people can hide behind all of that. You can have a ton of conversations with your neighbor about sports, about food, about whatever, and you would never know that they have a terrible marriage. You would never know that they were depressed. This is why whenever you see somebody you know, do something awful and they're in the news they've shot up a mall or a school or you know, do a bomb or something and then, and then the, the news crew comes and interviews the neighbors or interviews the classmates and you, you know, sometimes they're always like, I had no idea he was such a nice polite person. That's because those relationships have just stayed in small talk land. They never actually got to know the other person's heart. That's the casual approach. Here's the second approach. The aggressive Approach. This is the person that goes straight to the heart. I'm just going to cut through the onion and go straight to the middle, regardless. This is the type of person who can really can just walk up to somebody else, stranger on the street, and be like, "What do you think about Jesus?" I've got. I have a, one of my dear pastor friends. I know he has done this. He has walked up to a student and for the first time he met them. He asked them, "What's your biggest struggle that you've had this semester?" First question to get the conversation started. So, you know, I, I think that the aggressive approach feels a little bit like doing surgery on somebody without using anesthesia. <laughs> you know, it, it's you know, if if the casual approach lacks boldness, the aggressive approach lacks sensitivity and awareness and compassion. And so, um, the, the approach I'm going to sort of suggest, the third way, is what I'm going to call the marathon approach. It's where you are um, getting to know someone, but it's a marathon. But you are moving forward. Runners and marathons do run forward, so I'm told. But sometimes it takes a long time. And getting to know someone may take a very long time. It may not. You may get straight to the heart with someone very quickly, but usually, the way that if you want to get to someone's heart, it is a long step by step process. But it is progressing. It's not just staying in small talk land, it's, it's slowly getting to the center of the heart or the onion. So that's the purpose. That's the purpose of small talk. It's an avenue to get to know someone so that you know how to love them better. Second, the posture. In, in other words, what should be basically our attitude, our, our disposition, our, um, our ethos as we engage with other people in kind of normal conversations? Again, three suggestions. The first is that we cultivate conversational humility. Conversational humility. I looked this up, and etymologically speaking, the root word of the word humility is from the Latin word hummus. I don't, hummus? I don't know how you pronounce it. H-U-M-U-S. Hum, well, let's say hummus, because it sounds tasty. And so we're going to do hummus... <laughs> The word hummus in Latin means ground or earth. And so literally speaking, humility means staying close to the ground. And there's a lot of Christians and a certain, there's a lot of type of Christians that don't want to stay on the ground. They want to live in the theological stratosphere. Where all the conversations I want to have are about big, splashy, intense theological ideas. We need to be talking about predestination. We need to be talking about inerrancy. And that's theological stratosphere stuff. But then you also have Christians that don't like to have, quote, shallow conversations and just want to go real deep into the earth and always be talking about your soul and your heart and your life. And look, that's great. I'm a pastor and I live in those lands a lot of the time. But cultivating conversational humility means that you stay on the ground because that's where most people live their lives. Most people live their lives on the ground level. They're changing diapers They're mowing the yard. They're going to class. They're putting gas in their car. They're fighting traffic. Those are the ordinary details of people's lives where they live 95% of their life in the ordinary and in the mundane. And so cultivating conversational humility means that you embrace the details of other people's lives. You embrace it. You honor it. You actually have a genuine interest in the little ordinary, mundane details of someone else's life. This is, this is what I love when Yodas was talking about yesterday, when he was, he, he was talking, I don't know what, how he was framing this, but he was saying, basically, missions is ordinary people living ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. That could be the great sort of tagline for what I'm trying to talk about here. Ordinary people live in ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. So, for example, when I was in college, I was in a band. I was the lead singer of a band, which is hard to believe because I'm a terrible singer. But our band's name was Where Are My Pants. And... Um, it was, it, was a, it was a joke kind of comedy band. We would sing these stupid songs and go to these, you know, we'd play a little bunch of different shows. And, and one of the ways that I got to know and really love my RUF campus minister at the time, Doug Servin, is that he really, he just engaged me about this stupid little area of my life. You know, he, he went to our concerts and, like, bought our CDs and, like, listened to them with his family. He, he really, <laughs> he honored this really ridiculous part of my life and he could have just said, you know, that's sort of shallow, stupid stuff. I want to talk about real stuff. I want to talk about Jesus with you, Matt. And if he had, I, I, at that point in my life, I would have totally closed up and it would have been uh, not effective. But because he honored that area of my life, he took the details of my life seriously. It was incredibly dignifying to me, incredibly honoring to me. And I was, incre- I was way more open to talking to him about serious stuff. Conversational Humility. Here's the second thing. Conversational selflessness. Conversational selflessness. Lessness. And this is where we get James and Proverbs. When James says, you know, everyone should be quick to, uh, quick to listen. Slow to speak. You know, Proverbs says over and over and over. I only showed you two, but I could have showed you like ten passages where it talks about the fool is the one that talks quickly and talks a lot. The wise person is the one that is reserved with his words. And, and what this means, I, I think for us, I think, we, I think we can learn from this little nugget of wisdom from the way that Young Life does ministry. Some of y'all, a lot of y'all are probably familiar with Young Life. One of their little nuggets of wisdom from the way that they kind of, their philosophy of ministry, they say you have to earn the right to be heard. You have to earn the right to be heard, which means that when you come into a conversation, you come into someone else's life, you are coming in first and foremost as a listener, not as a speaker. As a listener, you have to earn the right to then speak into someone's life. Well, how do, you earn that light to, how do you earn the right to begin speaking into someone else's life? You love them. You value them. You take seriously what they're all about. And that will open up doors for, them, for you to be able to then speak into it. You have to earn the right to be heard. Which means that you listen to them. They're the agenda, not you. Not your agenda. They are. This 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 reminds me of you remember that old Shel Silverstein book The Giving Tree? I have a little three year old girl, and so I, we read that book a lot. But it's the story of this boy who has this friend that's a tree, which is a weird setting to a book. But anyway, he's got this friend that's a tree, and as the boy gets older, he just keeps using the tree. You know, he comes up to the tree and he's like, "Hey, I need your, I need your apples. I need to like sell them." And So the tree gives away its apples, and then he leaves, and he comes back later and he says, "Well, I need all your branches to build a house." So he cuts down all of its branches. The tree you know, gives away its branches. He leaves. He comes back later Later in his life and says, I need a boat to just get away from it all. So I say, okay, cut down my trunk. So the tree gives away its trunk. It gives away its branches. It gives it away its apples. It's not, a, it's not the best metaphor, but the idea is that you know, when you come into a conversation with someone, you're the one that's giving. You're the one that's listening. The other person's desires, the other person's Life is the thing that sets the agenda. Conversational selflessness. And here's the last one I'll give you on this posture of small talk. is conversational attentiveness. Conversational attentiveness. You know, back in the day when I was trained to do evangelism, and the way that I did evangelism for a lot of time was was they trained me... um, to to as you're in a conversation, pay attention to hooks that you can that you can hook into the conversation and steer it to Jesus to get to Jesus. So you're always looking for ways that you can kind of steer the conversation to talk about the gospel. So you know you ask your friend, oh man, you look tired. Did you not sleep well? And you're like, oh yeah, I only got four hours of sleep. And you're like, four hours of sleep? Well, let me share with you the four spiritual laws. <laughs> It's just, you know, these arbitrary mechanical hooks to steer it to Jesus. But I think when you do that, I think the reason why that's, that feels weird to us, I think because, one, you're being manipulative. You're, you're being a conversational bully in those moments. But second, you're also being selfish. You're, you're saying, we're only going to talk about what I want to talk about, and that's the gospel. What you want to talk about doesn't matter. You don't really matter. The gospel matters. That's the only thing that really matters. But also, not only are you being manipulative and selfish, you're being foolish. Because you're you're passing up what is already in front of you, which is already a spiritual conversation. This is where I think Eugene Peterson is so incredibly helpful because he talks about being attentive to what is already there in the conversation. That you're not trying to make something happen out of the conversation. You're just trying to pay attention to what is already happening in front of you. Let me give you an example from uh, one of my students. I, I recently had a- a lunch with one of our students this past semester. And we were talking about his life. I didn't really know him. We were having lunch together. And so we're just talking about high school. We're talking about college. And somewhere in there, we- he- I come to find out that he has a girlfriend. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you were dating anybody. i like, tell me about that. He says, well, we've been dating for two years now. Wow, okay, so you're a sophomore, so you started dating in high school. Okay, so I'm doing the math, I'm asking him more about it. And he's um, like, well, tell me about how, how are things going right now. And he's like, well, it's really, things aren't going well. Why? And he goes on to tell me that when he first started dating this girl back in high school, they had been dating for like two weeks, and he cheated on her, but never told her until a month ago for when I was having this conversation with her. So for two years they had been dating and he had had this kind of hanging on, hanging over him and he finally tells her like a month ago and of course it was this awful blow up thing where she, they're, they're still together but she hasn't forgiven him. And now he's just living every single day with anxiety and worry. He's overanalyzing everything that he's doing for her because he's trying to figure out, like, am I doing this because I want her to try to forgive me? Am I manipulating her? Am I doing this because I actually like her? And he was just buried under and imprisoned in shame and guilt. You want to talk about getting to the center of the onion quickly. You start talking about shame and guilt. And all I was doing was just asking him questions. And just seeing, okay, what's there? What is here? And, And, you know... When you get to shame and guilt, man. I, okay, now we're talking about some like inner heart stuff. Now Jesus is incredibly relevant to him in a way that that would feel disconnected if I started with that. Because I know about shame and guilt. I know how Jesus has dealt with my shame and guilt, and how He is dealing with my shame and guilt. But but that's what I mean is being attentive to what is already there. That's the sort of posture that I'm trying to talk about. As as we cultivate a, a posture of Conversational humility, selflessness, and attentiveness. Okay, let's look at this third thing. The third thing is the practice. We've looked at the purpose, posture. Now the practice. Okay, and there's, there, there, man, there's so much that I can say here, and I'll, so I'm just going to give you some brief ideas. Again, three. I like three subpoints. Because I'm a Trinitarian. And so, we're just going to give you three little subpoints on the practice, on how to make this as practical as I possibly can. Here's the, here's the, here's the first tool for you. The first tool to put in your tool belt of, as far as how to do this is to ask questions. Rocket science, isn't it? Ask questions. I really think the best, one of the best tools that you have in your tool belt as a Christian doing personal ministry is to ask questions. So think about, you know, think about the way that you study the Bible. If you've ever been to a Bible study class or even like training on how to study the Bible, you are trained hopefully to ask the Bible questions. So you're asking the Bible observational questions. You know, what does this text say? What's actually there? What is it actually saying? You're trained to ask interpretive questions, okay? Not only what does it say, what does it mean? And then you're trained to ask, you know, application questions. What are the implications of this text for my life? So you barrage the Bible with questions, both new questions and asking old questions in new ways, because if you don't do that, then you will make assumptions about what it, what's going on, and those assumptions can lead to false conclusions, so, when you do Bible study, you're basically, you're, this is you doing exegesis. As you're drawing out, that's what exegesis means, you're drawing out the, the meaning of the text by asking it all sorts of questions. And so, what I, what I want to suggest, as you relate to other individuals, the ministry of small talk, is that you're doing interpersonal exegesis. You're doing interpersonal exegesis. Which means, if I can even put it this way, this feels a little mechanical to me, but, but you're studying the other person. You're gathering data about them. You're you're asking them questions in such a way so that you you get to know more about them. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to say this. If I had one hour with a person, I would ask questions for 55 minutes and then talk for the last five. If I had one hour with one person, I would ask questions of them for 55 minutes and then only talk for the last five. So, so let me give you a couple of ways to ask questions. This is, we're getting hyper-concrete here. Um, three ways on how to ask questions. Um, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm getting these, these categories from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which again, if, if you haven't picked up that book, shame on you, you need to, because it's a great book. I think I, they should have it at the bookstore. Again, I don't know if the bookstore is open, but there is Amazon. So, Paul Tripp's book, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. So one one of his ways is, he says, ask people to define their terms. Ask them to define their terms. Here's an example. Whenever I was with my students, um, you know, when when students start dating each other, coupling up with each other, I always love, you know, catching them maybe six months into their relationship. Because the question I always love asking them is, okay, what what do fights look like with y'all? And really, for the first, like, year of my ministry, I'd always ask people that, and they would always say, we don't fight. And I would always think in my mind, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> of course you fight. What? Okay, so I, I wasn't understanding why, I was, why people were not you know, answering that question. And then one time, it just hit me. I asked, I asked this guy, okay, what do fights look like for y'all? And he said, uh, we don't fight. And I said, okay, what do you mean by the word fight? He said, you know, like screaming and throwing dishes at each other. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. I mean like, like disagreement, like conflict. He was like, oh, okay. So, so I had to change the way that I asked that question because of how people were interpreting it. So you have to ask people to define their terms. Secondly, he says, you know, ask them to clarify what they mean with real life examples. Clarify what you mean with a real life example. I was talking with a student uh, this semester, and he just kind of said in passing, you know, I didn't really connect well with my dad growing up. And I could have said, okay, that makes sense, and kept going. But I asked him, I said, play a video of what you mean by that. Like, tell the story. Give me a, a real-life vignette example of what it looks like for you not to connect with your dad. And it was so much, it was eye-opening. So you have to ask them to clarify what they mean with real-life examples. And then here's the other way, is, that it, is you ask them to explain their actions. Explain your actions. Because this helps you get more into the heart of the onion, because what you're doing is you're asking them to evaluate and analyze and interpret why they did what they did. So, for example, there's this, uh, in Boone, North Carolina, where I used to live, there's this great little coffee shop slash donut shop that I would frequent often because it had donuts. And because I was in there all the time, I got to know the owner pretty well. I would just, you know, he started to begin recognizing me because I was in there all the time. I would recognize him. And one day, just as I was getting to know him, I asked him, why did you decide to make this a donut shop right here, like a coffee house right here. And he said, he didn't know I was a Christian. I didn't know he was a Christian. And he said, because I want this to be a ministry to the community. Like, I want to, like, teach people how to, like, make coffee. I want to provide a space for ministries to use. By asking him, why would you do this? And again, he didn't know I was a Christian. I didn't know he was. But that told me a lot about his heart. That told me a lot about what was in the center of his heart. He wants this to be a ministry of the community. My point is, asking questions allows you to gather data in those moments and not waste your little small talk conversations. Here's the second tool. The first tool was ask questions. Here's the second tool: is look for themes. Look for themes. You know, there's like a million different Law and Order shows now. CSI, Miami, CSI New York, CSI. Greenville, South Carolina, there's, there's all kinds of... We're obsessed with these detective shows, and my wife is, and I've watched some of these with my wife, and I've watched, I've watched enough to know that the plot is always the same. The first scene is like a murder happens... The second scene is the detectives come on and like they scour it for clues and then the rest of the episode they find the bad guy and they take him to court. That's it. Over and over and over. For like 20 years This is we've been obsessed with this. So, but my, what's fascinating is that as these detectives come upon the crime scene they, you know, they see patterns and they see things they see clues that the other non-detective trained eyes don't see. They put together patterns. And, and if I can put it this way Every small talk conversation you have is like a little miniature crime scene that can lead you into the heart of that person. If you can just pick up on a pattern, if you can pick up on a theme, Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, I was recently talking with one of our sorority girl students and was loving getting to know her. I didn't know much about her, asking her where she's from, on and on. And and about 15 minutes into the conversation, she just said in passing, I'm such an idiot, just kind of like this in, in a jokey way and then kept going. I didn't really think anything of it. Ten minutes later, you know how some people kind of trip up over their speech and they're like, uh, and they like kind of do that thing. She did that, but then she was like, "Ugh, such a loser. And kept going. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then 15 minutes later, she did it again. Just in passing, she was like, ah, I'm, I'm such an idiot. Three times in like 40 minutes. And so I just, I'm, I, I just asked her right then and there. I said, okay, I'm going to bite on this. And I asked her, why do you beat yourself up so much? I wanted to ask her, why do you hate yourself so much? But I felt like that was a little too aggressive. But... <laughs> so I said, you know, why do you beat yourself up so much? And she was like, what do you mean? She had no idea what I was talking about. And so I mirrored back to her. I was like, three different times you've said this. And I actually, put, I put my, you know, just in God's providence, ended up putting my finger on something that was really meaningful. And we had a great conversation, like in the middle of the heart kind of stuff. But my point is, is that the heart leaves behind clues if you can pick up on the theme, if you can pick up on the pattern. It's like, it's like leaving little breadcrumb trails that if you can follow it back, it can get you into the center of the heart. That's the second tool. Here's the third tool. Be yourself. Be yourself. This requires you to you know, be yourself. As you're talking with the other person, you talk about like what's ordinary for you. And because you're a Christian, what would be ordinary for you is sometimes you tell them, yeah, I'm going to Bible study right now. Or I'm going you know, to a prayer meeting. I'm going to church. doesn't mean that you like hide Jesus from them. You, you know, involve them into ordinary details of your life because that's who you are. But that doesn't mean that you're trying to force Jesus into every conversation either. You're just normal, you're normal people and a lot of times, you know, Christians, we can just be weird we can be weird around other people because we either feel so insecure we don't want to ever mention Jesus because we don't want to be off-putting or we get weird because we, we're, like, we're finding Jesus under every sort of rock in our conversation My point is just to be yourself be an ordinary person living your ordinary life with gospel intentionality footnote yotis. last thing let's talk about the power got a few minutes left so let's talk about the power we've talked about the purpose the purpose of small talk is to get to know someone that you, you can love them we've looked at the posture which is cultivating conversational humility, selflessness and attentiveness we've looked at the practice of small talk, you ask questions you look for themes you be yourself hopefully that sounds familiar here's the last, the power where do you get the power to do this and just in the name of being cliche, I'm going to give you three. Here's the, third, here's the first. The first sort of power that you have to do this, because I, really, I want to encourage you with this, to go out and, and to feel liberated and freed, to engage with other people. The first power that you have is, I'm just going to say theological power. The, the, the great assumption behind everything that I'm talking about and behind the, the fabric of the universe is that God is at work. God is at work. And that means if he's the one that's at work, if he is redemptively, sovereignly overseeing and at work in every single conversation I have, and if, and if salvation really is his work, not mine, that frees you to be patient with people. That frees you to be patient with them and to get to know them over the long haul and not really feel like I've got to be in this frantic, faithless hurry to get them into the kingdom right this second. I mean, can you can you rest in the providence of God as someone walks away from you, knowing that they did not make a decision for Christ right then and right there? Can you trust them? Can you trust God with their soul that He actually loves them a lot more than you do? It frees you to be patient with people, but it also frees you to pursue people because He is at work and because in His gracious and sovereign plan He has chosen to use the church to be the people, the instruments of the kingdom. So it frees you to be patient with people. It frees you to pursue people. We live kind of in that tension. We live in that balance of like God is sovereign, but he uses me. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. So we have theological power. We have soteriological power. Soteriology is just a big fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. We have have salvation-y power, which means that as the gospel becomes more richer to you, more real to you, more personal to you, I think you'll just be more effective at loving people. Because, again, this this is basic, but if you think about it, what does the gospel tell you? What does the cross tell you? The cross tells you two things about yourself simultaneously. It tells you, on the one hand, you're so sinful that you need a savior, right? And it tells you, on the other hand, you're so cherished and loved that you have one. So if you put those two things together, actually, let me separate them first. If the first thing tells you you're, you're so sinful that you need a savior, man, this is what humbles you. This is what, this is what crushes you. This is what you know, breaks you down. So that when you, when you interact with other people, they don't sense, they don't smell any sense of superiority on your part. Now, if someone can detect that you think you're better than them, there's no way they're going to let you peel that onion with them. There's no way. But if they actually get a sense from you that you can relate to their addictions, their depression, their anxiety, their fears, their struggles, their moral screw-ups, if they get a sense that you can identify with me in that, I mean, that's incredibly <coughs> persuasive. That's incredi- that, that opens up the doors for you to be able to talk with them. Because you know the cross tells you you need a savior, it humbles you. But on the other hand, it tells you you're, you're so loved and cherished that you have one. And this is what gives you the boldness and the confidence and the joy and the hope and the warmth that will really attract someone to you, to really draw someone to you, because they can, they can sense there's something different about you. You can't just relate with me with my depression and my struggles, but there's some, you have something that I don't. So you put those two things together... When the gospel really is the shaping reality of your identity, man, that opens up all kinds of conversations. Because when someone does, if in God's timing, they do open up and talk about their shame and their guilt, you can relate with them. You can connect with them. You can can take them to Jesus with you. Soteriological power. Last one, and I'll, I'll end with this. Y'all have been very conversationally attentive thus far. Here's the last one. You have eschatological power. Eschatology, another big fancy word for the, the doctrine of end things. The great hope of the Christian, the great hope of the gospel, is not that our souls are going to be sucked away to a cloud in heaven, The great hope of the eschaton, of the end of all things, is new heavens, new earth, right? God's agenda for your life is not just to suck your soul away to a cloud in heaven. His agenda is to have you be a resurrected body reigning with Jesus over the new heavens and new earth. Here's what that means. That means that God doesn't just care about redemption, but he also cares about creation, if he only cared about redemption, he would suck your soul away and just let the earth burn. But that's not what he does. And that's what, this is what I mean. This means he cares about everything. What does he say in Revelation? I am making how many things new? All things. And here's what this frees you to do. This frees you to take seriously every detail of your life and every detail of someone else's life. Think about the ministry of Jesus for one second. The first miracle, the first sign that he did in John 2, water to wine. What is that? That's him caring about the details of some party that two teenagers didn't plan well for. That's the first sign of his messianic kingdom? It matters. The details matter. Think about feeding the 5,000. People are hungry. And Jesus is like, that doesn't matter. Your, Your hunger doesn't matter to me. I only care about spiritual stuff. No, he feeds them. Think about all the lepers and the people that were sick that he healed. He's looking at people's medical needs and say, the details of your medical needs matter to me. So what that means is that the eschatological power that you have is that God cares about everything which frees you to take seriously the details of your life and it frees you to take seriously the details of other people's lives. So, be encouraged to go love your neighbor in a very tangible way, in a way that I think is really normal on the one hand, and yet incredibly radical on the other. We're out of time, but let me pray, and then we can be dismissed. Father, we're grateful that you care about the ordinary, that when you look at us, you don't just care about our souls, though you do, but you also care about our children, you care about our food, you care about our medical needs, you care about our house, you care about everything. Will that really free us to engage our neighbor in the ordinary and in the mundane with the sweetness and with the power and with, and with the life-changing reality of the gospel. Father, help us to be people that love you and love neighbor well. pray that something that was said here in this seminar will be effective and will be helpful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.